You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. This is a real pleasure for me. I mean, really exciting. And I think the reason I'm so excited to have Coach Few here is because as many people who've come to the Walker Nellout Conference before know, I'm a leadership nut. I love reading about leadership. I love talking about leadership. And I like finding leaders who have, if you will, zigged when others have zagged, who um, have a certain leadership style that has allowed them to do things that others haven't been able to do. And as many of you will recall, last year, we had UMass hockey coach Greg Carville here, who took UMass from being the worst hockey team in Division I hockey to winning the national championship in the course of four years. And you heard about the culture and the way that Coach Carville turned that program around. If you look at what Coach Few has done with Gonzaga and taken a mid-major school and made it the school, taken a program to the NCAA tournament for every single year he has been head coach of the program, taking it to two national championship games over the last five years. It is phenomenal what Coach Few has been able to accomplish. And so first, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What a beautiful spot to have a conference and a discussion. I mean, this is amazing. And I owe great thanks to our mutual friend, Tim Wolf, yes. for having you here, because I know, Coach, you don't do a whole lot of speaking. And so getting on your radar screen and getting you to come here was all thanks to Tim and your personal relationship with Tim. And so thank you. I know Tim's here. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for taking my request and saying, sure, if, if, if he's a friend of Tim's, I might think about joining him. 100%. And, and uh, now just getting to know you and meet you uh, and know our similar likes is, uh, makes even more sense now. We should have done this a long time ago. So, Coach, you grew up in Oregon. You yeah. went to Linfield College and played basketball and baseball because of a shoulder injury, ended up then leaving Linfield and going and graduating from the University of Oregon and then made your way to Gonzaga as an assistant coach. Talk about the early days in the 90s when you were a mid-major school, what that experience was like in the 90s. Oh, wow. I mean, amazingly and so vastly different uh, than probably most people are familiar with now. Uh, at that point, my first year up there, I came on as a, a graduate assistant. And the way they did uh, graduate assistants back then at Gonzaga is you basically got your school paid for to work on your master's if you taught a couple classes. So I really challenged my uh, intelligence level and taught uh, weight training, basketball, <laughs> tennis, and flag football. And participated in all of them for a workout every day just to stay in shape and uh, uh, had a blast with the students, but, and then it was, but you were basically full-time coaching and I was sleeping on my good buddy who talked me into going up there, Dan Munson's couch and kind of living for free in his apartment. My first two years, my salary was uh, $1,500 a year. 
So I had to really, you know, come a long way. We've come a long way. <laughs> Gonzaga's came a long ways. But our team at that time probably had maybe two or three Division One level players on it. What I would say, and the rest of them could have very easily played. You know, probably should have been maybe at a Division Two or Three level. And we used to have to go around to the cafeteria and around campus and try to drum up excitement to get people to come to the games, which is vastly different. Like we were speaking prior to coming out here now where every game has been sold out in the new arena and, and students actually camp out for several days just to get in to watch the guys. So talk about 1999 when you made it to the elite eight, because to make it that far in 99 was a wholly new experience for Gonzaga you're there. You end up losing, I believe, to UConn in the 99 yeah, Elite, Eight. Yeah, Elite Eight. Talk about that as far as the first taste of national exposure and what that was like. Yeah, it, it was such a lightning in a bottle. And I don't know how many people here are familiar with the NCAA tournament, but it's just such a... I think it's pretty fair to say, Coach, everyone's everybody, familiar okay, with That's I, a baseline here. Okay, good, good, good. I need to just know my audience like you do with any good uh, pregame talk. So it was just an amazing two-week experience. And, you know, we caught kind of the eye, like almost like St. Peter's did this year, the entire country. And you're just on an adrenaline rush for, you know, two weeks and you're, and you're doing nothing that you've ever even conceivably even imagined you could do before. And, but the cool thing about it was to just see a group of guys that had so deserved it with all their hard work and had never been on that kind of stage finally get to play those type of level games. It was just so much fun, and it was just pure, unadulterated hoops with no pressure. We were under no pressure at all, which is vastly different than now. Exactly. So that's for somebody like us. As I think back to that, if you sit there and say, okay, someone who is going to make a bet on the program of losing the head coach, you become the new head coach, and for the next 23 years – you go back to the NCAA tournament. So I guess 23 was that year. So since that year, that includes yes. 23 straight runs. I mean, George Mason made the Elite Eight, didn't go back to the tournament. We'll see whether a team like St. Peter's can get back into the tournament next year. But the concept of getting to that and then holding that for as long as you have. Talk for a moment about the pressure you felt after an Elite Eight year stepping into the head coaching job. Yeah, and, and that was so different than what we'd had before. We never had expectations before. And so all of a sudden there were expectations uh, put upon the program. It's funny, I've had a busy week. I was in Kansas City at a huge uh, recruiting event, a Nike event that has all the top young players in it. And I had the chance to sit for a game and a half next to John Shire, who uh, has quite a bit more daunting task than I had at that time. John Shire is taking over for Coach K here next year. And so we were trying, I was trying to share with him just some of the incredibly strange feelings that you have when, when something like that happens. It, you know, it goes from always wanting to be a head coach and everybody talking about you becoming a head coach. And then when you get that call, it's like the, the, oh, you know what moment, like, oh, what the hell did I just get myself into here? And, uh, but then kind of things settle down and then you're just, you're literally running around just crazily your whole life has changed just trying to get everything organized the one thing that helped me was I had been at Gonzaga you know I knew everybody around the program you know that's so involved whether it's compliance and academics or housing or 
tutoring and all the, all those kinds of things. Plus the players that heard my voice. And I just tried to share that with John too. Like, you know, you're going to be fine. It's so much better than if you stepped into a brand new place, how difficult that would be. But the one thing that was totally different than what we had faced before were the expectations, you know, and everybody got a taste of that crazy success and just thought you could easily do it again. And, uh, that first year, those guys were so special. Some of them had came back from that 99 team and were seniors that year. And literally, I don't know, people don't realize this, but we were not going to make the tournament just based on how, you know, we'd perform. At that time, we weren't able to schedule the way we are right now. So we weren't able to, to get enough really big-time games to ensure that we'd be in the tournament if we didn't win our conference tournament. So we had to win that conference tournament, which is an incredible pressure on teams and coaches and staffs. And we ended up winning the tournament, in, I think, in overtime in the final game. And uh, what a relief that was. And in that same group, because they were just so, pardon the French, but just so ballsy and so tough and just so, I mean, they've all moved on to do great things in their lives. We went to another Sweet 16. We went in the Elite Eight, Sweet 16, Sweet 16, uh, which was pretty amazing. So talk for a moment about your coaching style, because there you are sitting next to the Duke coach. Every recruit in the country is being wooed by various coaches. When they sit around and say, come play for Coach Few, what is it like to play for Coach Few? What's well, the differentiator well, at Gonzaga? Well, if it's, if it's cool, I'll just kind of veer for a second just to so give you a, always a humbling um, moment that always levels me out when we, people ask me this question. When it all went down, when Dan Munson left, my AD is a great guy, unbelievable guy who just recently retired went to our president, great guy named Father Spitzer, who had the vision to really let the basketball grow and the school grow and, and the, you know, the facilities and the enrollment has went crazy, you know, in sync with the basketball winning. But he went to the president right when it went down and the president's like, well, Mike, what are we going to do? And he's like, well, we already know he's going to be the head coach. And Father Spitzer goes, and, and who's that? And Mike Roth, the AD goes, well, it's Mark, few. And uh, the President, president of the university goes, our AD, who's that? So I started with that. <laughs> so that always kind of levels me from there. levels me out when I'm sitting there. And, and uh, whether you're sitting next to Coach K or whatever, you know, it's nice to have the humility piece and the humbleness to kind of level you out a little bit. But no, our, our program, listen, there's two backbones that, that drive everything we do. And the first one is chemistry and team. Our culture is something we're very, very proud of. We're very protective of. It's, it's really been the, the pillar of everything that we've built there. And then it goes hand in hand with tracking the kind of guys that want to put in the work. We take a lot of pride in taking guys a lot of times that people haven't heard of, not so much recently, but and really developing them and turning them into great college players and now even NBA players. So I heard an interview you did with Adam Morrison, who played for you in the early 2000s, who is now a radio commentator on Gonzaga basketball, amongst other things. <laughs> yeah. What I found to be interesting, Coach, was that he said that he, as a player, was sort of petrified to talk to you and that didn't consider you as a friend until after he graduated. So talk for a moment, because we see from the outside, these players come off, they talk to you, they seem to have a very tight rapport with you when we see it on national television. But I was surprised that Andrew said, A, I was 
I was kind of intimidated by Coach View, and B, it wasn't until after I was out of the program that I be, actually became friends with him. You know what, Willie, I'd say that probably has changed as I've, whatever, grown up or got older or both in the profession. And again, I just think, I think it's important, like, I think we, uh, we've always built Gonzaga on having phenomenal relationships with our players, but I think it's good in some aspects. There has to be appropriate fear, you know, with the leader. And I don't know if fear is the right word, but maybe appropriate. I think he used that you are demanding without being demeaning, yeah. which I thought was a great way of saying it. I'm glad he used that because that would help be how I would describe how I try to be. And uh, it's fascinating because these are kind of going hand in hand. I just got done with a great uh, day and a half down at USA Basketball. And Steve Kerr and I were talking about this, you know, with the approach moving forward with this next group of guys for the Olympics on how to get them to understand how big this moment is going to be. It's going to, I mean, and the amount of stress and pressure on even the greatest players in the world to win a gold medal is, it's really amped up. But getting them to play with freedom and getting them to play with the most confidence they've ever had and getting them to still play with an unbridled joy is the whole thing. And if we can capture that, I mean, that's what we try to do at Gonzaga. I mean, I love watching Steve's teams and how he coaches because, I mean, I share a very similar view of that. But, you know, I mean, you still have to have that. There still has to be one guy in, in charge and in control of that to kind of you know, move everybody in the right places. Talk about that for a second, because during this last NCAA tournament, one of your players mentioned that during the tournament, Chet Holmgren was balling, that he'd gone from kind of just playing to balling. And I heard that and I thought, wow, that's great that he is doing exactly what you're talking about, of being relaxed and playing. But then I put that against, if you will, a coach Saban who has the program at Alabama. And it's like, he talks explicitly about if you're a running back and you think you can go right and cut back left, you're not playing for Alabama. You need to go right tackle and you need to hit that hole. And if the hole's not open, shame on the team for not creating it. Basketball is obviously a different sport, but how much balling do you allow versus play the program? Well, I try to allow as much balling. I mean, if they can get to that point, <laughs> if they're really truly balling, I'm all in. But if they're throwing the ball in the stands and then I have a tendency to veer towards coach Saban for <laughs> moments to get him back in the proper frame of mind. But anytime you get your athlete where they're not thinking and instinctually just playing. And then back in my young assistant days, the, the guy that I worked for was very demanding and very demonstrative and stuff on the sidelines. And I always felt like, you know, our players were always playing like this. And I always thought to myself, like, man, if I ever get to t lucky enough to be a head coach, I don't ever want them looking at me, you know, is this right? Is this right? I just want them playing with the crazy amount of confidence they play when they play pickup, because that's sometimes when you see them at their best. And if you can harness that and put it into an organized model where there's a common goal and a plan, but yet you're still hooping, that's as good as it gets. You know, I think most coaches would say that. And nobody's better than Coach Saban, right? And as successful as him. But his last couple teams have had some ballers on it. They deviate from the plan. Like Tua, those weren't planned rollouts and all sure. that when Tua's throwing it from the hip 70 yards. So. so you talked about culture and the importance of culture. I heard you say that for the first decade or so as head coach, the culture just sort of evolved and naturally happened. 
And then you said that when Kevin Pangos was playing for you, there were some things that came out of Kevin being on the team that kind of changed the culture of the team. Why, A, what changed, and B, why did Kevin have such an impact? He was just an amazing, he's a, he's a, a really, really good guard we signed from Toronto that just was wise beyond his years and, and very perceptive of, you know, what was going on. And he was a very personal guy. I mean, he's literally been obviously one of the all-time greats in our program, but probably one of the most loved guys to ever come through the program. And he was the one that's, you know, said, hey, coach, you know, do you mind if we start doing some things off the floor just building team and doing things and actually working on chemistry instead of just talking about it. And I was like, yeah, all in. I mean, cause he's such a wonderful guy and sure as heck, if it didn't start blossoming into something, I think that's where you're going with, uh, we hired a, a young man who's been with me now for gosh, I mean, probably 10, 12 years now. And, uh, Travis Knight is technically our strength and conditioning coach, but he's also now our, our team coach and our basically our mental development, you know, coordinator. So he handles everything that has to do with the mind, basically. And I can tell you, Willie, for the first, and I think a lot of coaches are like this, probably for the first 10, 12, 14 years of my career, you know, we just talked about the mental part of it and toughen up and work hard, get your confidence. And that was it. Now, I would say we spend probably 25, 30% of the athlete's time now on mental. Just anything that starts with team building. They do, we do this thing called PGMs. It's called Personal Growth Mondays. So, you know, the ordinary role of the season, you'll have games during the week. And then usually you can take Sundays a mandatory day off so the guys get to rest. And then Monday you kind of start it back up again. So we start every Monday with this personal growth Monday. And basically what that is, is staff, myself, coaches aren't allowed in there. It's just the players and Travis Knight, our strength coach and mental coach. And they can dive into a myriad of anything that's currently happening or that they've requested or that even Trav thinks they might need from processing pressure, processing expectations, lack of confidence, hitting adversity, handling success, everything. And what's interesting, especially with this generation of players, Travis has been able to come up with this great catalog of videos that they can watch. Like an example of one of the videos was several years ago, I think Steph Curry missed 11 threes in a game. Nobody ever missed, I think, 11 threes in a game or something like that. And so they show that to the team stop it and then ask each individual guy, you know, be like playing golf and literally shanking a whole round and hitting 12 out of bounds shots off the tee and four jacking on every green or something. And, and uh, so they go to him. So now what would you do? And so the, the athletes formulate some responses or whatever. And then the next video he shows them is Steph Curry's next game. I might be wrong a little bit on some of this stuff. He literally set an NBA record for how many threes he made the next game. And then it showed Steph talking after the game, like, well, yeah, I just, that's what I do. I shoot threes, you know? So I just came back the next day and did my normal routine. I knew the next one was going in. And so, I mean, to have that and then to tie it in with a discussion where the players can share if they could do that. And then the, the last part of it is Trav gives them some exercises and some thought processes 
that can kind of lead them down that path where they can kind of deal with something like that. So talking about the after the game, when you lost in the Sweet 16 this year, after the game was over, Drew Timmy came into the huddle and was very open with his fellow team members about how proud he was to be on the team and how he wouldn't have done it with anybody else. How do you create that sense of vulnerability and openness inside of the team where someone like Drew Timmy will not only say that in the huddle, but then turn around and say it in the press conference afterwards? Well, first of all, he's a special guy. I mean, he's a unique, obviously, player. He's the best player in college basketball, but also just a really connected and thoughtful and well-loved guy in the program. But he has to be supported in that by you. I mean, he goes plays for some other coaches and he can't express himself that way. Yeah. And again, I think that goes back to where we do and we do think we huddle up after practice and share things, some on the personal variety, some on the fun variety, some on any variety, you know, spiritual, anything uh, at the end of every practice. So I think that's something that we try to really, really reinforce to kind of open up yourself even show your vulnerabilities to your teammates. And that's how we can kind of all help work through them. And I'm assuming that your assistant coaches, if you will, fully buy into that. Talk for a moment about, you know, when you'd been an assistant for almost a decade, when you got the head coaching job, you had Tommy Lloyd with you for 22 years before he went off to coach Arizona. And you are a machine on your Zag history. dude. Like (laughs) this is, this is incredible. As as people know, I do a little bit of homework for these things. So, but Tommy Lloyd goes off to Arizona, but when you first came into the program, an assistant was thankful to have a job working for you. Now an assistant who comes to work for you is, you know, target number one for a up and coming program to say, if we can get an assistant from Mark Few, we're going to put a lot of money behind that and try and pull them across. How's that been in both investing in the time in your assistant coaches and then also dealing with the losses of them? First of all, you're overjoyed. Like with Tommy's situation, it was great. What a great job to go. I mean, to go from who would ever thought somebody could be an assistant at Gonzaga and be the head coach at Arizona. So, I, I mean, that that was one of those kind of, wow, our program's really arrived moments. You still kind of are harder to get as we move along. But you're overjoyed for him. You're um, excited for his family. You're worried about him, you know, hoping Gonzaga is a unique place with the support we have and the unconditional love we have and everybody in the entire athletic department school will kind of pull the rope in the same direction, which is not common in big time college athletics. But, but then there's a personal loss. I mean, he's a really, really good friend. He's been my sidekick forever. Our wives were best, best buddies. Our kids grew up together. So then it's just kind of trying to hold the whole home uh, front around everybody's balling and it's for emotional times it's really cool then to see the success that tommy had this year though and and leon rice is right up the road at boise State. state they had an unbelievable year this year he's family too my guy that's with me right now brian michelson is just so uber talented. Why so is he Mike such a good recruiter? He's extremely uh, organized, which is a great combination with me, who is not extremely organized. <laughs> so I always try to hunt out people that are a little different than me. And he's very relational, unbelievably relational, and is able to, to really bond with. But he goes somewhere like Texas to recruit Drew yeah. Timmy. Yeah. How does he win recruiting Drew Timmy against all the other recruiters who are out there trying to get him to either go to UT, go to Memphis, go to Duke. I mean, what's the sales pitch? It's again, that relational piece that he has, he's unbelievable with the families. He's unbelievable. He gets, I think to where the, the player really, really trusts him. 
for his future. And, and you know, with, with these type of guys, these are big, big, big decisions now because we're not just talking like 30 years ago where you get to go to school and these are decisions that are going to lead on to futures in basketball and, and, you know, professional futures and such. So he does, he just does a great job of doing that. And then, I mean, he's got some pretty good, you know, uh, ammunition behind him with all the, just as a success of the coach, coach views winning percentage is 0.836%. of the games he goes into, he wins. The guys win. And that is the one thing about coaching. The players are the ones that they make the baskets, they get the stops, they are, are the ones. It, it's our job to find the right ones, and I think at Gonzaga we've been blessed and lucky and fortunate enough to find the right ones that really fit what we're all about, and then to direct them and organize them and get them in the right system and frame of mind to succeed. And, and uh, I think that's what I take probably the most pride in is that whole process. So you obviously exited the NCAA tournament early this year for the expectations on you as the number one team in the country. This was but going great. I know. It was Sun going Valley. great until I went back. I was, to, we're going to go on this ride later. Exactly. I was fired up for the ride, and now I, I, won't, go. I, won't, I won't mention yeah. Arkansas again. Yeah. Talk for a moment, Coach, about the next day in the sense that the disappointment of the loss is obviously there. You work with the team to say, hey, it's a game. We move on from this. And I've yeah. heard you talk about that extensively. But what I want to get to is how your world, the day after the tournament, you know your players the day of the tournament, you know your coaches the day of the tournament, you to some degree know you're recruiting in the inbound on the day of the tournament, and then all of a sudden the next day it's as if everything goes sideways. Talk about that for a moment. Willie, it is the absolute most shallow, empty, worst feeling uh, in the world. You just go from having a purpose every day and organize, you know, hey, we wake up, we meet, we, you know, we watch film, we, you know, we walk through and then we do media and then we do practice and then we, you know, have a, you know, a good session of dinner and fun with the guy. I mean, it's just all, everything's about that. And then it's over just like that. And you see the angst on the families and the players are hurting. It's tough. It's interesting. It's, I've done it enough now that I, I kind of got it down pat. I mean, it takes a while to heal and get over it. But I always say this, the players get over it first, you know, because they're young and got everything in front of them and they're kind of bulletproof. It takes them about 48 hours or something usually, you know, they mope around for a while and then they're back in the gym a couple of days later. The coaches are, you know, it takes us about a month to get over it, probably a good solid month. And the fans never get over it. <laughs> I mean, I hit the lake in the summer in July, like, oh, I can't believe we, what happened? And you're like, I am so over that. Okay. Like we're moving on. And they literally, yeah. So it's, and it's just like clockwork. So I look forward to time at the lake, you know, on a dock somewhere. So Chet goes number two in the draft. You've taken a program that used to have people for, several years at least, and now you've got a lot of one and dones. How's that made coaching and recruiting and the complexity of fielding a team that much more challenging? It's made it incredibly more challenging because uh, with that, we never want to lose our culture, you know, of team first and, and the chemistry of obviously playing for the name on the front and the name on the back. 
And we, uh, you know, we've had back to back lottery picks, top five picks. And it's just been unbelievable how both of them have handled it, how they've been champions of our culture and they're, and they're so appreciative. And we just had a dinner down in Vegas. I was just down in the, for the NBA summer league watching Chet play his first game down there and then watching Andrew Nemhart was our other draft pick play his. And we, and we had a dinner with DeMontis Sabonis, who was years ago now, is now an NBA all-star. You know, Zach Collins was our first one and done, but that was 2017. All our former players, Rui Hachimura, all from different generations, but they all get together at this dinner and they're the best of friends, even though they never even played with each other. And the connection is Gonzaga basketball and the kind of family that is because of that. And talk about a powerful moment. I mean, it's just so cool to, to see that. But that's kind of what we able to, we're hope to kind of make sure we continue to have, even though we're recruiting this higher level guy that, you know, in both cases we knew was only going to be at school for a short time. So with the transfer portal now, it doesn't require explain the transfer portal to the audience. You can explain. You can explain the transfer portal <laughs> a lot as, better than I can. As, it's as weird as you think it is. This so portal. I'll give you the layman's view of the transfer <laughs> portal. It used to be that if you wanted to transfer from one school to another, you told the coaching staff you wanted to transfer. They would put you into the system, and if you then transferred to another school, you had to sit out for a year. And the NCAA changed the rules last year that you go into the transfer portal and you can go to any school you want, and so you can go immediately from Michigan to Gonzaga if you want to, and you just go into the transfer portal, and if you want to come, you come. What it's done is just created an, well, it's created a kind of a, a not only a market for yeah, all the talent, yeah. but the management of who's on your program for yeah. one year and the next. And where I was going to coach was, we spoke previously about Jalen being on the team and Andrew transferring when he didn't have to sit out for a year right. and how you managed Jalen having had your commitment that he's the starting point guard and then Andrew coming in and being able to play and the conversation you had to have with him. Is that, I mean, you're going to have to have that conversation almost every year, given the transfer of talent and recruiting people to come in saying, you're my starting point guard. And then someone says, I want to move from X university to you. And again, it like building your team used to be, you could kind of map it out on a four year plan and you knew where everybody was going to be and project hopefully well this guy's not ready to start this year but in a year or two he'll be ready to start that's just been thrown into the wind now and so uh literally roster building and trying to figure out who your team is you usually have a pretty used to have a pretty good eye april 1st and now i think most of us are just now getting a feel for where our rosters are and team we i had a couple practices before I went out recruiting. Those were our first practices. That's the first time we were all together. It's not fun. I can't say that it's fun. I don't know that it's a lot of things that happen right now or are happening are, you know, well-intended rules, I think. But what didn't happen is they didn't get proper input from us coaches who live the life every day. So there's a lot of unintended consequences right now. And so consequently, the transfers, I think we went up from maybe 20 something percent to, gosh, I think there's probably 60 or 70 percent of athletes now are transferring and, and bouncing around from school to school. So it's a huge challenge on what we spoke to earlier about team building and chemistry and culture and playing for the name on the front. But, you know, so far we've been able to navigate it pretty well. It just goes back to the people you select into your program. 
When we talked about Drew, you were talking about the decision for him to come to Gonzaga and that it's a major life decision. That it used to be get a scholarship, go play basketball, and if you play really well, you go on to the pros. Now every Drew Timmy out there is sitting there going, all right, A, am I one and done? And B, what about Nils? So talk for a moment about name, image, and likeness and how that is changing the game of college basketball. Yeah, it is changing the game probably in a way – more difficult uh, type of change than, than the transfer portal did in that it can begin to become very transactional unless you have a handle on it. And the name image likeness, like the transfer thing, is, is a great plan and a great idea. For instance, Chet Holmgren and Drew Timmy were two of the probably highest, them and the Kentucky kid, Oscar Shibway earners or beneficiaries of name image likeness last year, but it was a legitimate name image likeness where Drew had shave club for men commercials. Uh, that mustache <laughs> yeah, a little yeah. bit of trimming. And that, yeah, but, but, and what a great personality for that. You know, Chet was able to, to do all kinds of national and it was national type advertising. But with these things now, it dives into some of these areas where, Basically, booster clubs are putting forth money just to pay guys to come play at their school or or stay at their school. And that wasn't the intention of it. And that's where it gets to an area where it doesn't need to be there, but it's going to be hard now since it's the genie's out of the bottle to get it back. So how does a school like Gonzaga that has seven men's sports and seven women's sports compete with the Texas A&M booster club? Yep. Sorry to anyone in the audience who's a Texas A&M alum, but that's Texas A&M on the football side, to those who don't know, did exactly what Coach View just talked about, which was go out, raise $25 million from their booster club, and then use that to guarantee nil income to Texas A&M recruits, which then gave Texas A&M the very best high school football recruiting class of this year. So that's where Coach Saban made some comments about it being out of the letter of the intent on Nils of using these booster clubs and the breadth of them to create these, if you will, blank checks that could bring players to Texas A&M. So how does a smaller school like Gonzaga compete? Again, the belief is, and, and I firmly have that belief, that we can continue to attract the Drew Timmys, the Chets, the Jalens, the Kevin Pangoses, the based on our success, because at the core of all of that, and I'm sure with this group, money is great, but how you do it and the way you do it and who you do it with ends up mattering the most in the end. And that's the type of guy that we still end up attracting. And then in that process, I think our guys realize that the NIL stuff is a nice piece to this, but if I do my work and, and do the plan at Gonzaga. I can see what, how Chet's doing right now. I can see how Jalen's doing right now. I can see how Rui Hachimura's doing. I can see how Corey Kispert's doing. I can see how, how much money Domus Sabonis is making. And it's nothing compared to what, you know, the NAL stuff is. So that's what we're banking on. And I'm, I, I firmly believe that that'll hold true, uh, in the long haul. You, you, from, you don't need to convince <laughs> me on that, Coach. We picked you up in Las Vegas at 6 a.m. this morning, so you were up at 5.15 to get to the plane, and you're flying back to Spokane tonight. Yeah. It's a busy time. tomorrow, but I went recruiting. Then I met with uh, Chet and the staff of the Thunder and, and was able to watch Andrew play for the Indiana Pacers and get with him and kind of support him. And then we had USA basketball meetings uh, 
yesterday, which is just what a great, uh, it's weird to get, or seems weird at this point in your life to get just such a great professional development uh, hit to sit in those meetings where Grant Hill's leading them. And what an amazing person Grant Hill is and uh, all the life experiences he's had. Steve Kerr is the head coach. Eric Spolster is an assistant. Monty Williams is an assistant. You know, in the past, we were all in there with, uh, with Coach Popovich. And Coach K was there. Coach, K, him. Coach K was there to, prior to that. And it just gets your juices flowing, probably like this conference does for these people to just start, you know, you start thinking and you're planning and you're like learning. and, and But yet you're also kind of reinforcing a lot of the stuff that you already did, but it's great to hear that Steve or Monty or Eric are, are, are doing that with their own programs. And, and uh, ah, it's just so, I mean, it's just like a bolt of lightning to kind of get you going where usually you're kind of just kind of limping along in the summer doing recruiting stuff. So uh, uh, pretty good about, stuff. As you think about Coach Kerr and coaching in the pros versus you coaching in college, what's the biggest difference in, if you will, how he has to coach his team versus how you have to coach your team. I think those uh, pro guys, whether it's, uh, you know, Steve or Monty or, or Eric, just watching them uh, over the years and talking with them, it's how they deliver their message is very important. And then just kind of the management, the, there's a management of egos that needs to happen. And, you can, you know, as you spoke to the NIL piece with me, but can you imagine trying to build a team when the guys sitting on the bench are making significantly more money than you are by a long shot? And also, I get some, used to that some, with my bank with my bankers at Walker and Dunlop. So oh, I know exactly what's going on about working with people who make more money than you do. Well, there's your next, uh, there you there's go. your next gig. Yeah. But then also, they might be up for a contract that year and the guy next to, you know, so sometimes if you're up for a contract, you have to kind of make yourself look good. So fighting those individual instincts that they might have to try to in a contract year and still build a team. And that's what's so brilliant. I mean, when you watch the Warriors play or, you know, the Miami Heat play or Phoenix, it's just, it's just inspiring how those guys are able to, to pull that off. I don't want to bore anybody, but so, we were down there and Coach Pop had to go to a wedding, but he gave us some, you know, some takes from just the recent Olympics. His, he writes out these cool little notes or whatever. And uh, I got to read this because I didn't want to was brutal with it. But this is pretty cool. And this sums up why Gonzaga is still going to work in this NIL. And it sums up how those guys are able to still coach in the NBA and how we were able to win a gold medal last year. Okay. So hang with me. Try to. You're like my team here. you got to have an attention span longer than five or ten seconds here. So This is called Old Warwick. A man became lost while driving through the country. As he tried to read a map, he accidentally drove off the road into a ditch. Though he wasn't injured, his car was stuck deep in the mud. Seeing an old farmhouse just down the road, the man walked over to ask for help. An old farmer answered the door, Warwick can get you out of the ditch, the farmer said, pointing to an old haggard mule beaten down standing in a field. The man looked at the old haggard mule and then looked back at the farmer. He just stood there nodding. Yep, old Warwick can do the job. The man figured he had nothing to lose, so the two men and Warwick made their way back to the ditch. After the farmer hitched the old mule to the car, he snapped the reins and shouted, Pull, Fred! Pull, Jack! Pull Ted, pull Warwick. With hardly any effort at all, the lone mule pulled the car from the ditch. 
The man was amazed. He thanked the farmer, patted the mule, and asked, why did you call out all those other names before you called Warwick? The farmer just grinned and said, old Warwick is just about blind. As long as he believes he's part of a team, he doesn't mind pulling. <laughs> that's, that kind of sums up. We get these little gems from uh, Pop all the time. He's an amazing, amazing man. Amazing leader. He's an amazing leader and, yeah. and created such great teams down in San Antonio. With Tim Duncan as the most, if you will, uncelebrated most valuable MVP ever in the NBA. Yeah, correct. And just an incredible culture when you think they had that run basically with the same core, Duncan, Ginobili, Tony Parker, and that gang, much like what Golden State's doing with Steph, Clay, and Draymond. One of the things that Tim, I didn't think we were going to go here, but Tim, one of the things that they say about Tim Duncan was that he, just in looking at his fellow players, he can get people to do things. Like he'd come off and you did not want to see that look in his eye that said that you disappointed what Tim Duncan did. I remember back to hearing Adam Morrison talk about when you all lost to Stanford back in, I'm going to swag it, 2006 or 2007, and you flew back from Palo Alto back up to Spokane and the team got off the plane. This is when you were still playing commercial, not private. And you sent them straight to the gym and you all did a workout in the gym. Do you still do that kind of stuff? Uh, you can't do that now. I, uh, <laughs> I, the great, there are all, all sorts of great aspects about Drew Timmy, but his nickname with me is the union rep. Drew doesn't go for that. So I pick my battles with the union rep. So you and Marcy have three boys and a daughter. Yes. And your middle son is playing for you at Gonzaga. How fun is that? It's been awesome. It's really, really been cool. He's been a great, it's fun to see how he's bonded with all the team and how close they are to him. And then uh, it's actually, when you have a college age kid, you just long for just a little bit of time around him. So it just is kind of forced time to be around him and either before or after practice. And, and then what's been so cool and so amazing is he's became kind of this crowd favorite guy, you know, that they're just rooting like crazy for him. In fact, this is ridiculous, but like I'll be, we'll be coaching them if we're fortunate enough to get up. You found your own fans yelling and screaming at you. Put Joe in. We want Joe. We want Joe. You know, it's my son, you know, <laughs> and they're on me to put my own son in. But, you know, we have a hierarchy at Gonzaga. There's some walk-ons that have put their time in before him that need to enter the game before Joe does. So that, you, that makes for some anxious times with the fans on my ass. Will you be faced with the decision of giving him a scholarship or no. does he get in under the professor coach plan? Yeah, he'll be on the coach plan. He'll be on so the coach yeah, plan. He won't be a, no, yeah, he doesn't need a scholarship. Nor is he good enough quite yet to get a scholarship. He's, he's getting, getting there. there. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's getting, getting there. there. Final thing before I open up the questions, if anyone has questions, which is just the economics behind it, coach. I think in the NCAA tournament this past year, Gonzaga basketball was number 18 as far as total revenue to the basketball program. Yet you also put $6 million to the bottom line. So unlike a lot of other programs that I went and looked at, you have probably, if not the one of the most profitable basketball programs in the country. First of all, is the university cutting you in on that? And second of all, does that give you the ability to bring in, you know, coaches and do things that other programs can't do? The best Greatest part of other than the players and everything that we've been able to attract there is I think this willingness 
and over the course of 25 years now of the school to grow with us. And nothing was ever given to us. I mean, even after that Elite Eight and Sweet 16 and all that, we were still in this crappy little locker room that was probably 10 by 20 and in an old dilapidated gym and didn't finally move in. I think once the school began to recognize like, hey, we can really, this still jives with what we're all about at Gonzaga. And, and, but yet we can grow. I think that first run in 99, I think there were maybe 2,800 students or something at Gonzaga. It's now up to 8,000 and there's been 17 or 20 something buildings built since that or something along those lines. And, and, uh, and it's just been a great lesson. And if, you know, if you invest in the right things, it can make everything better, which is no different than Alabama football. I, oh, yeah. I would say everybody hammers them for how many coaches and how they do this and that. But I guarantee you the track team is traveling better and in better facilities. The tennis team is in better. And the number so, of PhDs they're yeah, creating is, yeah. is higher. Yes. It's, it, I mean, it's had it across the university. And so I think it's just a great example of everybody being on the same page and moving forward. That's the one thing. I think that fuels me a lot of time. It's weird, Willie. It's kind of, I guess I would say it's part eagerness and it's a healthy dose of paranoia that, you know, if we're not growing, we're going to get past. And so that's always I have no idea haunting what, me. I have, I have no idea what that feels like. Let me open it up for some questions. Um, I got one right there. What's your name? Craig. Craig, that is a phenomenal question and one that it's on the portal. Yeah. And what's going to happen to graduation rates as people transfer from school to school? And what is happening with graduation rates as we've opened up all these floodgates of transfers? We had the graduation rates on such an unbelievable uh, upward trajectory, especially with uh, people of color. And they were really, really the best they had ever been in years because we'd really had some hard line things put on our programs. Like, like if you didn't have certain what's called APR, if you weren't moving your guys along and keeping them eligible, you would lose scholarships. And so people were doing a great job of, of graduating their athletes. Now with this transferring from school to school to school, those rates are going to plummet. They just are. I think it's our lone hope that we can hang through a statistical analysis, show that to people that that's probably isn't. There's nothing wrong with spending a year at school without, you know, playing in games. It helps you academically unbelievably, gives you that extra year to graduate and all that. So that's the message we're trying to get out, actually. You mentioned that you are ankle to shin deep on analytics. Will you talk for two seconds? Yeah. Yeah. About, I think it's Coach Jacus who runs analytics for you. Well, no, no. Now, John oh, Jacus, he introduced me to him back in 2015, and it kind of changed. He was able to uh, do it in a manner that was that finally pushed me over the edge. And so we began to use analytics, and, and nothing like some people use them. We use them as, with how we can kind of show our guys and get our guys to absorb them. But they've been a big piece of us, and just basically it's using the efficiency. How efficient are we on the offensive end, and how efficient are we on the defensive end, and what can we do strategically 
to change that, you know, and, and I think you brought up our ball screen coverage, our defensive coverage when we had Chet Holmgren. I did something that I've never done before, and I was really, really swung by the analytics that the staff presented to me. And then obviously when you have a special talent like Chet, you gotta you can't be stuck in your ways. Got to let him ball. Yep. Okay. Um, you said you played college baseball, so I'm going to throw you a little curveball. No, do you not? Do you play college uh, baseball? I did. Baseball, I'm baseball. Little, Barely. I threw you a little curveball. So, yeah. 50 years of Title IX have been around. Yep. Just want to get your thoughts on it and if it's still beneficial in today's world. I mean, it's been incredibly beneficial if you've seen the growth in all the sports and the opportunities, I think, is the biggest thing that's out there. And certainly, I mean, there's still room for growth. I personally think the next step is to kind of get a lot of these programs to stand on their own and start seeing if they can develop their own followings, you know, media-wise and generate their own income and, and things like that. And I think when they do that, then the sky's the limit. But it's been just in the, in the time that I've been in college athletics, it's, it's changed uh, dramatically. They've been very beneficial with not only the amount of scholarships offered, but usually whatever the men are doing. For instance, our, our women's team charters now and has access to all the same facilities that my team has. I assume that you've uh, many times been uh, offered jobs at other schools or in the pros. What have you thought about it? And uh, have you ever come close to doing it? And what is your advice to other coaches if they call you? Because I know they have. Yes and yes to the first two. There's been a couple in there that, yeah, I wrestled around with a little bit and looked at, you know, whether they were heartstrings or you know, the power of the brand or power of the program. But what I always come back to is I'm super, super competitive. I guess I'm at the point where I can finally admit that. I didn't used to admit that to my wife or anybody. And, and uh, I'm at a place now that I think is the best job in college basketball with just the type of guys we're able to get and coach, the type of lifestyle that I have. I'm a huge fly fisherman. I love to get out in the outdoors and monkey around, whether it's mountain biking or playing pickleball or wake surfing or whatever. I've been a Northwest kid guy, man, my whole life. And Gonzaga just works for me at this point. It's, it's been my adult life's work and I'm very proud of it. And I'm still challenged and happy. And, and I guess what I usually tell other coaches is just, you know, don't mess with happy. If you're in a good place, you know, sometimes that grass isn't quite as green once you get over on that other side of the fence. There are only two coaches in NCAA basketball history who've gotten to 500 wins and 600 wins faster than Coach Few, Adolph Rupp and Jerry Tarkanian. I wanted to ask, uh, what is it, admittedly an unfair question? He's a Maryland alum, so careful. Thank you. Well, then I must uh, add, I'm really close personal friends with Mark Turgeon, so let's... Yeah, that didn't work out so good for us. <laughs> Great recruiter. Depends on what Great recruiter, don't from. get me wrong. So this is an unfair question, given where Chet is in his career. But if you had to compare him to other players, who would you compare him to skill set wise at this point in his career? Obviously you're talking NBA type level players in. I think what's so polarizing about Chet is he's, you know, and that's how I think initially the media came with the unicorn. He's hard to draw comparisons for. I don't think we've had somebody, obviously people want to, like compare his body to Porzingis or whatever, but 
Porzingis never blocks shots and has a defensive impact that that Chet has shown he he can do on the collegiate level and then we'll, I, I'm no question he'll show on the on the NBA level. So I think it's hard. And, and the other thing is, even I was going through it when I was just down in Vegas, you know, dealing with the people making judgments after his first or second summer league game, you know. And everybody gets caught up sometimes in his scoring. The, th- the thing with Chet that's so fascinating is he impacts the game in, in every single way. I mean, he, he's a great passer. He can bring the ball up the floor, help you break pressure, lead the fast break. He can stretch the floor. He provides great space on the floor because he can shoot the threes. He's a very good shooter from out there. He can initiate, initiate offense with him. He's obviously an elite rim protector. So there's just all this stuff that goes into it, you know, but I mean, the big question I think that everybody has is how's his body going to hold up? And again, I, and Willie tells me you guys all or follow it, but he's seven, one hundred. Now he's now up to, I think he, he guaranteed me he was 197 pounds the, uh, the other night, but I wasn't buying it, but he works really, really hard. It's just hard for him to put on weight. So I just think he's just going to be Chet. You know, I don't know that there is going to be a, a comparison for him. Coach, just one thing on that, as one of the things that a lot of people, is being in the WCC an advantage or a disadvantage as it relates to recruiting a player like Chet? Because you say there's a question about him at the next level of being beat up. Given that you all dominate the WCC and always get to the tournament, and also, as you said previously, are able to play a Duke out in Maui, and, and so you've got a great schedule. It's not like they're not getting up against the best schools. But is it actually an advantage to say, come play here, not get beat up all season long like you would in the Big East or the ACC, and then we'll go to the tournament and we'll have glory days versus going and being in, if you will, beat up every single day? Like initially it was, that was something that was always used against us with, well, they don't play in this league. And, and then we were able to combat that with, well, we've been five out of the last six years, a number one seed. So, I mean, that's based on performance scheduling and all that. So that didn't really fly. And then once we were able to start putting kids in the pros, that didn't fly. You know, the development type, you got to play against these guys. And we just say, well, instead of playing one game a week, how about if you play against pros every day in practice? (laughs) So that that should help more than anything. But that you bring up a good point. I don't know about the banging part. What we try to share is our pace that we play and how fast we play. And it's kind of a, in some ways, kind of a West Coast style, I guess. And I guess the challenge, again, for a lot of these guys is do you want to play that way or do you want to just go grind it out in the Big Ten and play, you know, it's 22 to 21 at halftime, you know, and and is that servicing you as well as as playing here? And so we, we kind of present it in that way. Hey, Coach, you guys in 2021, you lived in the bubble for about a month, if <laughs> yeah. not a little bit longer. Can yeah. you tell us about that experience? Oh, my gosh, the bubble. A lot of video games. There was a lot of stuff going on. So the bubble, the NCAA came up with this idea that every team, we would stay basically on our own floor in a hotel for the entire time you're in the tournament to stay COVID clean which became quite a challenge. So it, it based the, the frat house that was Gonzaga was the third floor of the Marriott Hotel in downtown Indianapolis. And initially it was kind of strange to open up your door and be right. There's Drew Timmy and right down the hall is Jalen Suggs. And oh, that at, at the end of the hall, it's Corey Kispert. But uh, in a strange way, like 
we made it all the way to 10. By, by the way, we're testing, I think, twice every day, which, I mean, if we're sequestered, I had no idea why we're still testing every day when we're just locked in a hotel room. We would be allowed out for two hours a day outside the you know, fenced off area. We'd go to this uh, minor league baseball park and my family was there to watch the tournament. So I was able to stand inside the fence at the major league ballpark and talk to my family who had to be 25 feet away outside the major league ballpark. And so, yeah, it was a little bit, I'm sure, you know, similar to a prison term in some uh, uh, ways, but the crazy thing was when we got done with the Baylor game, we got to that point that Willie's talking about where the season's over. And I mean, we're undefeated and we lose our last game. So it was just devastating. We get home and you think, I would assume it's kind of like coming back from, you know, war or something. You think you're going to be all fired up and you are for your house and your dogs and the freedom and all this. But I got to tell you, I miss the camaraderie of the third floor of the Marriott. It was great. It was just so much fun. I mean, uh, the guys were playing Settlers of the Catan and playing all the we have games, you know, at night. Off the record, the staff had set up the Northern Lights Brewery in the weight room at the end of the, uh, the, <laughs> of the floor at 6 o'clock. We had an awesome happy hour that you weren't supposed to fraternize with other coaches, but I'd invite other coaches to come up the stairs and they'd uh, show up and we'd kind of have chalk talks and hang out. I was a total rebel in this deal. I, I organized a speakeasy pickleball tournament because we had these enormous, enormous uh, team rooms, the convention center. They were huge. You could put courts in them and stuff. And we taped out a pickleball court. So actually, Scott Drew and I were partners in pickleball the whole time we were there and just uh, kind of schooled on everybody. But Jay Wright came, Jay Wright came down and, and there were other coaches that would sneak in there. We had a special knock and everything. And that, uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, you had to do something, man. I mean, you just go crazy. You just get so nervous and uptight. You had to do something. So that was our, uh, there was a lot going on in the bubble, but it was, uh, it was fun. But yet, man, seeing the family across the fence was most, the most bizarre thing ever. Thank <laughs> you.